0: This week on FX Guide TV,
1: we're at FMX 2011 Stuttgart, and we take a look at new open source from Weta, as well as get a primer on Katana.
0: Hello,
2: and welcome to FX Guide TV. Last week was FMX, and John Montgomery and Ian Fales were there. Now the conference has really expanded in recent times into a key event in the effects calendar. John is now back from Germany and has all the latest, including some great open source news regarding deep compositing.
1: Well, thanks for that, Angie. I really appreciate it. And Ian Fails, welcome to In Front of the Camera.
2: Thanks very much, John.
1: Uh, So what are your perceptions of FMX, our first visit here?
2: Yeah, well, it's been fantastic. We've had a great time in Stuttgart so far, and the conference has been amazing. You know, there's been case studies, panel sessions, SIGGRAPH papers, and I just went to a Harry Potter tribute, actually, where they had visual effects from the last 10 years' worth of films. You know, another thing we've been seeing is a lot of stuff about open source software.
1: Yeah, actually, they spent basically the entire day in sessions about that, talking with people from various uh, software companies, people like Marc Petit, people like Dan Cadella from Disney, who actually announced three new initiatives they have. They have D, which is a fully rigged Maya character. They actually laughingly kind of remarked they're spending more time on that character than they have on some of the characters on their film in order to get it right. Uh, they have a custom expression language, which is actually universal across multiple applications, so you really only have to learn one language. And so we might see that in Mari in the future, as well as an uh, OS 10 installer that doesn't actually run on OS X, uh, basically to allow you to update software on other computers not actually run OS X on non-Mac computers. Uh, but really the big announcement, I think, came from Sebastian Silwan and Weta Digital. Uh, they announced that they're going to open up their deep compositing tools uh, first is part of the OpenEXR 2.0 spec. Now obviously, they develop a ton of software in-house at various facilities. And I asked Sebastian actually to give us a rundown of the type of stuff that they do.
3: In some cases, uh, tools get developed starting from a very specific production need in a, uh, sometimes even in a shot. Uh, and so, those typically um, are tools that uh, get developed and as soon as they're ready they get uh, put to their paces and uh, and in some cases um, they get left there until there is a new need or a need to expand them um, and there are definitely other tools that are thought of as more sustainable or, or more integral part of the overall pipeline and in those cases we tend to try to design them uh, a little bit better and to tend to try to uh, design for the sustainability over time and and how we're going to maintain and keep um, keep adding to the tool and then there is an even third um, level in which we're um, researching techniques that might not Turn out into a tool, or might uh, lead us to discoveries that are different from what we had from we had originally envisioned.
1: Was well, there a certain type of tool that makes more sense to take open source?
3: Um, I don't know that there is a direct uh, correlation between the two things. Um, one of the things that I think open source makes sense to uh, for is is actually um, file formats, for example, or workflows, or things that are actually more um, uh, commoditized um, the um, we tend to look at which tools give us a competitive distinction or a competitive advantage over our competition and those are the ones that we want to keep tied to our chest to some extent um, in most cases when we develop a workflow and it doesn't have uh, that uh, distinctiveness or that or that uh, competitive level um, then it uh, it, it could be a good candidate if it is also representing a workflow that is useful for other facilities, and uh, and if it is a, a uh, that's that's why file formats is a, are good examples because they typically represent a flow of information from one task to the next, and those tend to be relatively standard in, in the various facilities. Well, so how did it come about that you decide to actually release the deep opacity
1: stuff that you've been working on internally for so many years?
3: So there are some cases, the, 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 the case in point of the uh, file format that we are um, open sourcing or that we announced um, the, the intention to release it as open source is that um, we came out with a way to use uh, data that was uh, that was in reality inspired by the uh, deep shadow format uh, from PRman. Uh, we came up with a novel way to use that data for different type of operation, to store different types of data in that same format and, and to do different operations. Uh, when we came up with it, um, there wasn't really any other uh, facility using it that way. However, um, of course, over the uh, long term that uh, that uh, the last production uh, took, uh, people moved around and started uh, expanding that knowledge and started uh, spreading it around. And um, the, the, uh, the use actually took uh, took ground and people started um, hearing about it and, and finding it in, very useful and so other people were starting to look at that same workflow. And that's where we said, well, we have something that is proven, it's, it's already at the second iteration, we, we've, we've gone through the first one and ironed out all the kinks um, and we have a, a second iteration, um, we can put it out there and, um, and have that workflow be a standard. Well actually that proven thing is kind of a big deal, isn't it? I mean I, I
1: think that's one of the things about OpenEXR and why it was adopted so quickly and widely. It was it was used at
3: ILM, what I like to call
1: battle tested. Um, isn't that what makes it interesting to other facilities?
3: Very much so, and that's where um, that's where iron out the kinks is the important part. We uh, and that's where having an open file format, where or having a, an open discussion about around a file format and a workflow, uh, adds value to that. So before um, our first impetus, our first instinct was to say, we'll put it out there, and then we started discussing with other studios and say so. Does this really match all of your needs? Have you come up with other ways of using it that we didn't envision originally in the file format? And there were definitely inputs that came from other studios and we said, ah, actually, yeah, that's a very good point, valid point. But it's actually interesting
1: that you were open enough and that the studios, while competitive, were interested enough to actually work together on this because it is quite a big deal. It's in everyone's benefit to have it work, right?
3: It is, and, and standardizing the workflows is actually one of the premises to call ourselves an industry, right? <laughs> Industrial the process means that uh, um, all of the bolts and nuts need to have the same thread. Otherwise it's going to be difficult to share data between facilities and more and more we are uh, seeing that facilities do get specialized and uh, uh, share data, collaborate on the same project and I, I think that's a good thing.
1: Okay, so we've got a little bit of background. Let's talk more specifically about what you announced here at FMX. It actually comes in two parts, I think. Uh, first, let's talk about the open source, deep opacity stuff that's going to be part of OpenEXR 2.0? Yeah,
3: so we had developed this uh, deep opacity file format that uh, internally we call Z, um, and um, uh, we started discussing with the studios and part of the input. Um, the, the file format was inspired loosely uh, on the OpenEXR uh, structures, and um, so when we talked to the other studios um, and prompted their opinion to see if it would uh, fit their bills as well. Um, We asked specifically the question, what would you prefer seeing? Uh, A loose integration with um, OpenEXR, for example, or a release as a separate library, uh, or a tight integration with OpenEXR. And so out of those three options, unanimously, everybody said, we want a tight integration with OpenEXR, which, of course, was the option that required the most work (laughs) on our part. Um, And um, uh, other people volunteered resources. So we are working collaboratively with other studios to actually make that integration. And that's why we're not yet releasing. We're announcing the release. And it will be released as part of of the OpenXR, so uh, deep opacity data will be a first class citizen inside the OpenXR specification. Okay. So it's great you're contributing this format and making it open source,
1: but it really wouldn't have done much good without uh, any tools that artists could use out in the field. And that's where the second part of the announcement comes in.
3: Yes. So the part that we are open sourcing, of course, is the libraries that will be in OpenXR to read. and write, potentially, uh, deep data. Um, but we also licensed to the Foundry our toolset so that uh, they can make it part of a future release of Nuke. Uh, they were already working on part of, uh, of on workflows. But um, again, since we had already ironed most of the kinks, uh, they, they saw some value in actually um, seeing a reference implementation and, and or bringing it into the core uh, of Nuke.
1: Well, you mentioned the Foundry, and I think it's interesting to contrast something like the deep compositing open source stuff you're releasing versus a full blown application like Mari. I mean, what are the considerations at a company like Weta when deciding to say release something open source, market it yourself, or hand over the Foundry to develop it?
3: Well, Mari is really a tool, right, is a creative tool, uh, whereas you can see the um, deep opacity as a, as a workflow and as a file format, really. Um, there, are, there are the creative tools that, that accompany it. Um, however, those tools are part of a much broader um, part of the action, right, part of the um, overall process. Um, so th- there, there is a distinction. There's also a level of scale. Uh, the Mari code base is, uh, is uh, much larger and, ma- to, to a certain extent, uh, uh, much more mature. Um, and even if other facilities would have bought Mari, We're not in the business of commercializing software, right? It's, uh, so for us is is something that we have developed that is mature enough, that we are using, that we are interested in other studios uh, adopting it as a standard. Um, uh, We're interested in getting artists that are already trained on that standard. We're interested in getting more resources to uh, further the development uh, even more. Um, But the, um, if it was just the, the, the commercialization, we probably wouldn't have done it.
2: Yeah, so that's really interesting. You know, there's a lot of companies involved, ILM, Disney, Sony Pictures Imageworks with Alembic. So it's a lot going on.
1: Yeah, now that's open source. And it's kind of interesting because Sebastian talked about applications versus uh, more specific tools or workflow stuff. And there's one of those applications that was developed at Sony Pictures Imageworks, which is Katana. The foundry is now taking over development. And we've heard about that news for a while. But we actually f- learned that they made their first sale on Katana to Digital Domain, who's purchased a site license, so that's big news for the Foundry. And the application's coming out soon and is in testing a lot of other facilities that they've said they've got some good leads on it. I think something that's been hard to grasp is actually what is Katana. And we had the good fortune to sit down with a couple people Andrew Lomas from the Foundry, who is actually the product manager for it, as well as Jeremy Sellin, who's from Sony Pictures Image Work. He was actually involved in the actual creation of Katana. So we sat down from him to get a broad overview
0: of the software. Now, Sony Imageworks is the visual effects branch of Sony Pictures. We've been around for uh, almost 20 years now, and we've worked on hundreds of films, including Green Lantern, Spider-Man series, Alice in Wonderland. And our, our impact in uh, computer graphics goes back many years. So if you think back to Stuart Little, which we worked on in 1999, this was one of the uh, first uh, films to feature a CG character as the uh, main hero. And I want you to look at the shot and just get a sense of the visual complexity involved. So there's a single character, Uh, it's rather low geometric complexity with the exception of uh, fur and hair, but those are really procedurally generated. So it's a pretty simple character. It can fit in the computer's memory even at the time. And it's just a relatively straightforward thing to consider from the human perspective. So I'd like to jump forward 10 years. And here's a shot from Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. And I'd like you to get a sense of the massive increase in complexity that we see both on the CG feature animation side as well as in visual effects. And if you think about in the last 10 years, from 1999 to 2009, even though the computers have gotten substantially faster, in many cases tens of thousands of times faster, humans really have not. So the question is, how do you present to a human this much information where they can interact with the crowd, interact with the detail, in a way that they can really efficiently do it? And that's where Katana sort of comes in. So I was one of the original developers of Katana, along with uh, Steve Levites and Brian Hall. And we started in 2003 to really address this problem. We were doing simple productions, and we saw the complex things coming up with massive crowds, massive environments, and literally thousands of shots in a film. And the question was, how could we really approach those and approach that complexity? So that's what Katana is designed to do. It's, it's less of a lighting tool. People often describe it as, oh, it's a way to use lights or a way to talk to the render. But it's really more than that. It's really sort of a toolkit that allows you to put together different visual effects and CG animated feature pipelines. and it's intrinsically designed with one goal in mind, which is how do you deal with complexity, both shot and pipeline complexity, but also scene complexity in terms of geometric detail. So this is, I dug this up from the archives, this is actually the first picture we ever rendered in Katana. We had been working on it a few months, and we had written the core geometric processing engine, which for those who are uh, familiar with the term, it's a uh, recursive geometric procedural in something such as PRman, where it basically calls into itself. But uh, the underlying technology, even though this is a really simple image, is pretty powerful. So we uh, handed this to the artists, and literally a few months later, this is what they were doing with it. This is a fully CG shot from uh, Spider-Man Three, and we were really excited when we saw this. This is uh, the, fir- the Black Spider-Man character <laughs> is the first character ever looked at in uh, Katana. So we were really psyched that they went from something like this to something like this in the span of a few months. And in fact. Uh, When we originally started developing Katana, they had promised us that it would only be used on a few small shows. uh, You know, just to test it out, sort of work through the kinks. And as soon as we had it ready, even in its alpha stage, Spider-Man 3, Surf's Up, and Beowulf immediately switched to it. Which was uh, flattering, but also a bit scary to roll something out that early in its development. So the name of the game in CG features is how do you deal with lots of shots, all of which are complex. So this is the uh, color script from Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. And I just want you to get a sense of how many shots are involved in the production of an animated feature. It's hundreds if not thousands of shots, in this case probably 1300 shots. So the name of the game is efficiency. How can you efficiently create uh, these shots over many, many sequences? So what we do is we set up a template. Here's an actual Katana scene, used on Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. And for all of you who have used compositing packages such such as Nuke, uh, this will no doubt look familiar. Essentially, it's just a scene on rails. So the artist doesn't start with an empty scene. Instead, they start with something that describes the steps. So this is where you bring in geometry. This is where you add your lights. This is where you do material assignments and other standards. This is where you set up your render passes and so on. And the idea being that if you jump from shot to shot, uh, it wouldn't surprise you, what you see in your Katana scene. And uh, more than that, if you develop standards... So here's an environment from cloudy with a chance of meatballs as well. And what we did is it's a very complex lighting environment. Each of the tables is an emissive uh, area light. Uh, this is a full global illumination solution using the Arnold renderer. And the idea being that we had a single artist do look development for this area. And then they hand off those standards to just drop in all of the individual shots. Now the beauty of Katana is it might have taken us days to get the first render out previously. Now we can do it in a matter of hours once the environment's been looked at. So it's really helped us to do uh, sequence standards and things like that really, really efficiently. So now I'm going to talk about uh, visual effects pipelines and how Katana handles them. And the name of the game for visual effects pipelines is complexity. Here's a shot from Watchmen. Now if you tried to load a shot such as this in your renderer all at a single time, or in your computer all at a single time, there's no way it would be able to handle that much complexity. So at its core, Katana does deferred loading of everything. That's essentially what it's designed around, as I mentioned earlier. So what Katana does is here's a real Katana scene being interacted with. And what you decide is, hey, if I'm interested in this building, I can open up the geometric detail, zoom in, and make the edits I want. When I'm done making those edits, I can close up all that information and still retain the change I've made, but the computer itself doesn't even know about the change it's only stored the instructions on how to make that change. So it's a very powerful technique, which is at the core of a katana. Now, these are the challenges that every visual effects studio faces. I mean, once you get to a certain size, you just have to address these problems. It's if you have hundreds of artists working on assets and you have to bring them all into the same scene, there's just no way the computer is going to be able to load that amount of detail. So people often use proxy representations and so on, but you inevitably get to the problem where if you're using proxies and you need to make a change to something in that proxy, how can you actually do that addressing? Katana is designed with that in mind, where you can open it up, make the change at the level, and then close it back up. So it really gives you the best of both worlds. So here's the real shot from the uh, Watchmen scene. You can see how it uh, uses lots of passes. So these are the nodes that bring in the building destruction and the simulation. These are uh, nodes that actually dynamically generate the materials on the cars and come up with variations in the color and shading. These are nodes that bring in the rocks and the effect simulations. And these are all brought together to create the final shot. And here is the final Katana graph. And I I hope this doesn't scare people from the complexity, because it's it's pretty complex. But it's no more than you would expect in a traditional uh, compositing graph. And it really lets you show how you can customize the pipelines. You can really think of each of these uh, complex chunks of the node graph as a custom pipeline tailored for this shot. And here's the final node graph for that Watchman shot.
2: So what I'm talking about is when you get to Uh, almost like a level of complexity in in the show doing 3D computer generated imagery, where you basically need to start dividing things up into different tasks. So you have like modeling, lighting, animation, effects, people doing sort of set layout, basically various different people doing different tasks, then need to hand off sort of well-designed assets from one department to the next. And basically when you have an asset-based workflow, the look of lighting often become the central hub department, so basically where all those 3D assets need to come together. And basically, so you've got all these different people producing these 3D assets, and they need to become, be assembled in 3D and then developmental lighting, and then turned into things that can actually be delivered to a renderer. And this is basically what Katana's about. So now I'm going to switch to actually showing Katana running live, to sort of illustrate how Katana actually solves some of these problems. So the first thing to notice is that the interface in Katana it looks, in many ways, much, much more like a node-based compositing package than most 3D applications. And this is really very de- deliberate, that, in some ways, when you think of what you're doing in node-based compositing, it's almost like designing a recipe, that you have your file in saying, bring these image sequences in, then various non-destructive processes saying, like, blur this, uh, composite this over this, and then going out to potentially you know, totally independent different outputs for, like, writing files out. And you can update the image sequences you know, relatively seamlessly. So like, I've got a new image sequence that uh, I now need to run through my comp. Your comp is still effectively a rule-based, recipe-based thing to describe how to produce everything. And this is exactly basically the principle that Catan is based on. Is that basically if we try to treat look development lighting in a recipe-based approach, almost just like node-based compositing, that seems like a much more sane way of getting almost a separation of I've got assets and I've got my recipe. And I mean, I can update my assets, and my recipe should still work with those updated assets. And I can start my recipe before I have all my assets ready. So basically, almost like have a sensible separation of of, you know when you're doing pipelines, so you can work in parallel between assets and recipe. Okay, so. At the top here I've got a node which is going to bring in a whole set of geometry. So almost like this is put into the file in, but what it's going to bring is a whole set of 3D geometry assets. And these are actual real production assets from Sony of some of the buildings they've used in New York, in Spider-Man 3, and Watchmen. So basically this node says bring in a hierarchy. And I I can basically, if I close my hierarchy down, all I get is a bounding box. At this point all Katana needs to know is I've just got a bounding box. And then I can sort of open that up and I can see the buildings inside that. And one of the principles here is is that to light a shot, you don't really have to load the whole of that scene data into the lighting application. It's the renderer that needs to be able to see all the geometry. For lighting, most of the time, all I need to see is relatively low proxy resolution versions of things so I can direct my lights in the right directions so I can set things up. But I still want the flexibility to be able to open up anything if I really want to. That's one of my really strong principle, Katana, is I really do not really need to load my whole scene into, into the computer to actually light it. So hopefully for most lighting, this is enough. I can just have proxy representations of things and I can create lights work out where those lights are uh, pointing at. And then when I send it to the renderer, and this is up here, I'm actually seeing a genuine RenderMan render. Man render. Um, it's the renderer that needs to be able to take my recipe and then load all the proper geometry it needs. But I still want to be able to drill down into anything if I want to. So in here, I absolutely can just like drill right down into any asset, right down to like individual pieces of geometry if I want to. There's some reason that I need to go into that piece of geometry and change an attribute, change a parameter. In fact, in Katana, I can get even right down to having a look at you know, all the, the vertex data, all the UV sets. All that information is still available to me if I want to be able to edit, modify that and, and inspect that. So now I've got some other nodes, so a node creating a camera. And basically, you can see it's also very much like a node-based compositor, that I get the parameters for the node, and I can, like, you know, I can click on a node and see the parameters at the node. I also can click on a node to see the view at that node. So if I click on this node, it shows the 3D scene that's produced you know, in my node graph at this point. So this node, what I get is a small scene with the camera. This node is creating an instance of a shader, and, this is, and in this case I'm creating a RenderMan shader, and so here I get you know, what shader I want, and basically I can dial parameters of a shader. And here's another instance of a shader i for doing window materials. And then I have lots of non-destructive processes that I can basically use to affect the scene. So I've got things like that can do, combine different parts of the, those scene elements together to create a single scene. And here I've got a node that basically can assign materials to objects in my scene. and These are all done using non-destructive rule-based approaches. So, for instance, here I've got a rule saying I want to assign my window material Onto everything that's got the name glass in the object names. So if I've got very strong naming conventions, I can set up things like material assignment based on naming conventions. There's all sorts of other ways you can do it. Basically Katana is a very flexible tool set, effectively. So I also could do material assignment based on metadata. If there's a piece of, you know, a given named piece of metadata in an object, then I want to have this material. Or based on you know, the values of metadata. Or also what's called collections, basically arbitrary sets. So that say in modern I can be saying, whenever I've got a stainless steel object, I want to add that to the set of stainless steel objects. So as I get downstream in Look Development and Lighting, I can just say, put the stainless steel shader on all stainless steel objects. As you can see, it's like really powerful tools for setting things up in this rule-based way. Then here I've got a, a node which is almost like the sort of one-stop shop for creating lights and uh, dialing shader values. So in here I can sort of like you know create lights. I can do things like mute lights, so I can for interactive rendering switch off the effect of that light. Solo a light, just so all I can now see for the next interactive render is just the the, just the effect of the light, what shader it uses, the main parameters, so the color of the shader, intensity of the shader, whether exposure offsets, which are the main things that most lighters parameters most lighters need to sort of change around. But if I want to dial right down into the the individual shader settings, I can still open up all the original, these are RenderMan shader settings, uh, that the shader had. So what I'm going to show is uh, is basically, I'm going to now show you some rendering. Now this is going to be using uh, Pixar RenderMan's Lumiere, which is basically the interactive relighter for RenderMan. So, for, so before this session, I rendered what's called a Lumia cache. It took about, think about five or six minutes to take this real production geometry with real production textures and sort of like create this, the first image. But once I've got the cache, I can then move lights around interactively to see updates. So first of all, I can do things like look through a light. So if I go to my, my gaffer node, and, uh, okay. so back to my gaffer node. And I can sort of go to a light, look through that light, and move that light around. And Then you can see that, you know, basically, I get this much faster than doing a full re-render update. So this is basically you know, Katana just acting as an interface to a renderer that has interactive relighting capabilities. So renderers like RenderMan and Arnold and like so that have interactive relighting capabilities, this can act as an interface. So I can move the light around, I can, say, change the, the color of that key light. Say so I want to do a more nighttime scene, and I wanted to make the key light a sort of redder color. Then also I can, do, maybe let's take the backlight and change the color, uh, let's change the intensity of the backlight slightly. So let's change that down to one, an intensity of 1.5 rather than an intensity of 2. Or I can go to my, uh, my spotlight that's got the uh, Hieronymus, who's our logo from the, the, the boundary. i to hit my spotlight, look through that and get up some mani- geo manipulators for that and change the spotlight so I can make the spotlight bigger. Move the spotlight around. Change the, the hardness in the spotlight. Let's move. Good, let's get move back so I can see Subornus's face. Now, Subornus has probably been partying at NAB a bit too much. So let's make on the green. So really, say so this is Katana can act as an interface into a renderer's native capabilities. And then down at the bottom here, I've got a like number of different render outputs. I've got you know, saying that down this branch, I want to configure things for my main render, but down this pass, I want to configure things for my specular pass. So I can do things like edit-based changes to say things like how I make a, specu- a specular pass is I take every shader in my, in my scene and I want to override the diffuse value to dial that down to zero. And basically. I can have almost like arbitrary amounts of nodes, very much like a 2D 2D node-based comp to say how I individually want to tailor things. And if an individual mod object needs to almost like special attention for how it needs to be configured for render pass, I can define that in nodes. So it's in development for release this year, and it's already in a, a limited release alpha test with a number of different studios, including Moving Picture Company and Digital Domain. We're also already making use of Katana technology and other products at the Foundry, which is one of the things we're really excited about. Uh, but it's something you're probably not going to see so much as the users directly, apart from there are probably going to be really interesting ways that we can share 3D information between different products at the Foundry, by things using the core libraries that is built on in the products of the Foundry. And we're also actually we're already making use of this in Nuke. So the way we're getting from Nuke to Renderman is actually using Katana libraries internally. And that worked really, really well. And we're already now looking at making use of that in Mari and having much, much richer links between different products at the Foundry making use of Katana technology.
1: Well, that's a wrap from Stuttgart and FMX 2011. Great conference. We've got more stuff that we got coming up in the next couple of days.
2: Yeah, we're both going to London. And I'm going to go and talk to some studios there for some FX Guide articles. And also stopping at Singapore on the way home to Sydney. It's quite
1: a haul to Sydney. What is it, like a week to get back there or something like that? Yeah. Good times, good times. But again, if you guys have a chance to make it here to FMX next year, I highly recommend it. As you mentioned, it's a great mix. The speaker's really high level, and frankly, a lot of fun, because I like the beer. Um, That's it from here. Why don't we head on back to the studio in Sydney and Angie.
2: Thanks for that, John. And if you want more background on deep compositing, Mike covered it right here in episode 95 of FX Guide TV, which you can find on our site or at iTunes. Well, that's it for now. So until next time, see ya. For more industry news, in-depth features, podcasts and forums, check out fxguide.com. And for visual effects training, check out fxphd.com.